I, I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things I dread about trips is unloading. I mean, you pack the car up and then you have to carry everything back in. When our kids were little, and obviously you just kind of had to send them in the house, I would tell Julie, uh, we would be back at the back of the van, I'd just say, load me up. I want to take as few trips as possible. So she starts throwing bags over this shoulder and this shoulder and all of these. And I got pack and plays and bags down my arms. And there was this sensation of being able to walk into the house and then let go and be able to take bags off shoulders and bags off around your neck. And you'd already got a mark there where one had cut in. But I hated taking trips out to the car. So I tried to carry as much as I could in one load. And when you unpacked, it was such a relief. You know, life has a lot of baggage that we carry with it. There's emotional stress, but there's also the aspect of what we carry spiritually. And when we carry heavy loads of spiritual guilt or shame or regret in our heart and life, it's good to have that day when you can finally take it all off and lay it down. And there's only one person who can bring you to that point where you lay it down. His name is Jesus. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse number 36. Luke chapter 7 and verse number 36. It says this, then one of the Pharisees invited him, that is Jesus, invited Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. 
That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. With that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, for the opportunity we have to open your word and Lord, to see your love and Lord, how we are challenged to be people who love you. So today, would you just stir up a fresh fire in our heart to love you more? If anyone doesn't know you as savior today, may they unpack the sins of their life and find relief and forgiveness in your forgiveness. Jesus, move in your name. Amen. At the end of Luke chapter 6, Jesus has finished the sermon on the plain. And then we find Jesus has been confronted constantly with problems. And we find that Jesus' power has taken care of the challenges of life. That when Jesus is confronted with problems, he has the power to solve problems. He has the power to take care of needs. So, after he finished his sermon on the plain, a centurion came to him and said, Hey, I have a sick servant, but if you just say the word, I can go and, and he'll be healed. And Jesus healed a sick servant. A woman was walking out of the city of Nain with a deceased son. And Jesus brought this young man back to life. John the Baptist was sitting in prison and and doubting and needing reassurance of his faith. And Jesus brought reassurance. And then we find here in this passage a woman with a sordid past. A sordid past of sinfulness. And Jesus is going to provide her with the forgiveness that is needed. We pick up the scene. Jesus has been invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. He was invited with evil intentions, and we can deduce that from the fact that when Jesus shows up, there is no one to do the hospitable things like wash his feet or to put oil on his head or to give him a kiss on either cheek like they would do as a customary greeting in the Eastern world. There was none of that. But Jesus just sat down to recline with the others, even though Jesus knew that this was not a well-intentioned invitation. Jesus came anyway, and Jesus is sitting there with the others, predominantly probably Pharisees, at this table. And as they're sitting there, something happens. There are people probably watching. Uh, in the first century, when someone would have a banquet, it would be like all the neighbors would come out and try to see who was coming to somebody's house. Basically, they've had nosy neighbors since the first century. And so uh, nosy neighbors always were interested in what was going on at someone's house and, and seeing who was invited and seeing what they would wear and and. Sometimes even scooting up close to the windows to maybe even hear an eavesdrop on what they were talking about. But on this day, 
something happened that was quite unprecedented. Something that broke tradition and the law of the Pharisees. Here a sinful woman enters. And as this sinful woman enters, she begins to weep at Jesus' feet as they are reclining with their feet away from the table and their, the table here and their feet away. They're probably reclining on their left arm and eating with their right. This woman begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and with this alabaster jar of perfume. An alabaster jar of perfume was something that was very precious. It was something that was very expensive. It was somewhat, some people even thought of this like as a savings account kind of thing. To save this up as something very precious that would would be worth more later. And she takes what is most precious to her, maybe her most expensive item in her life, and she begins to anoint and put this perfume on Jesus' feet and she is weeping and she is washing Jesus' feet but not just washing Jesus' feet using her hair to wash off Jesus' feet. And then Simon, the Bible says, he thinks to himself he doesn't say this out loud but he thinks to himself what kind of man is this Jesus? If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is touching him. So first he questions Jesus, who does this Jesus think he is? If he's really a prophet, he doesn't want this kind of person around him. I don't want this kind of person around me. I am a righteous Pharisee. I would not allow someone like this in my, in my house, in my life, nor would I allow them to touch me. And yet Jesus is there and this woman is weeping and she is kissing his feet and washing his feet and putting perfume on his feet. And this guy's thinking in his mind, who does Jesus think he is? This girl is a sinner, most likely a prostitute, most likely someone who has been away from the things of God and even the things that she knew was right and wrong somewhere along the line in this Jewish culture. She had forsaken them all to enter into a life of prostitution. And Simon is thinking, this girl, man, ugh, that's that, that nasty. I mean, you couldn't have this kind of person around you in, in life. And then Jesus says, Simon... Can I tell you something? And so Jesus begins to tell him a story. He says, teacher, go ahead. tell." And so Jesus begins to tell a story. And he tells a story about a creditor who allows two people to borrow from him. One borrows 50 denarii and the other 500 denarii. Now, a a denarius was uh, basically a day's wage. All right. So I am, you know, not a math genius. That's why I do this job. But if we just make this very easy for me. All right. If someone made $20 per day or $20 per hour per day times 50 days, that would be about $8,000. If someone did uh, borrowed 500 denarii, that would be about $80,000. So in our terms today, it... Making $20 an hour, okay, a denarius, if your labor, hourly labor was about $20 an hour, there's one person that owes $8,000 and another that owes eighty. If you bump that up to $25 an hour, you've got someone who, and this was the math I was originally going to do because it's really easy, $10,000 and $100,000. 
So you got one person who owes $10,000 and you have another one who owes $100,000. And then they show up on the day that their money is due and both of them are absolutely unable to pay. No money, nothing. I got nothing. Nothing. Can't pay back 10000 can't pay back 100000 And then it tells us that the creditor graciously forgave them. And then he asked Simon the question, who do you think, which of those debtors will love that creditor more? And he says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the $100,000 would love more than the one who was given the, forgiven the $10,000. And then Jesus, seeing that woman and seeing Simon, is going to set up a comparison and contrast. He's going to say, Simon, when I came into your house, you were not even hospitable to me. You did not wash my feet And yet this woman has washed my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, you did not offer me a kiss of greeting on the cheek. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not offer me the anointing olive oil to kind of feel, make me feel refreshed upon my head. But she has taken her alabaster jar of perfume, which was very precious and very expensive, and she has given perfume, uh, placed that perfume on my feet. And then he's going to set up this contrast and say, here you are, and here she is. Now, as we look at these two people, Simon, you think you're a pretty good guy. And you feel like you don't have much sin in your life. And you feel like you can take care of it yourself. But this woman over here, she knows she's in sin way over her head. She knows that she is unable to achieve salvation and receive heaven on her own. And then Jesus basically says, therefore, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she has loved much. And then when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to this woman, the other Pharisees or those gathered at the table begin to, hey, who is this guy who thinks he's going to forgive sins? What's going on here? Who does this guy think he is? And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I don't know where you are today. You may feel like you're like Simon the Pharisee and you're a pretty good person. And I will tell you, Whether you stand with this much sin in your life or this much sin in your life. Whether you feel like you've lived a pretty righteous life or an unrighteous life. Whether there are things that you look back and say, oh yeah, I may have messed up a little here. Or you say, man, I have been disastrous in my moral life. The truth is, is everybody needs forgiveness and everybody needs Jesus. For those of you who have experienced his forgiveness and transformation, we ought to be the people who love much. So this morning, I want to challenge us in the area of our love. And as we think about that, I can tell you, I love Jesus because he forgives sin. As we think about Jesus, I love Jesus because he forgives. You know, as we 
we look at our life, the Bible says that really uh, none of us can earn or deserve heaven on our own. The truth is that Jesus knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows our life. He knows our life. Matter of fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so when we think about Jesus knowing our life, he knows everything that we have ever done wrong. He knows He just knows it. The times that you fooled your parents or the times that you fooled your spouse or the times that you fooled your kids. Jesus knows it all. And when we think about this in a theological realm, there's a a term called total depravity. And that term really gives the picture that in our heart and life, that because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, that all of us have inherited a guilt and sin nature that comes with that, and that all of us are affected down to the very core of who we are. Our heart, our emotions, our will, our desire, our longings, everything in our life has been broken because of sin, and we are separated from God and cannot earn his favor on our own. So that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1, it tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we are spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 3, it tells us that we are by nature in, in our birth, children of wrath. In other words, we are born with this sin nature that is going to come out in our childhood and often in our early preschool years, but is going to be something we wrestle with the rest of our life. We are sinners because we have this sin nature that we are born with. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 3.10 makes this picture of where our heart is the most clear. It says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. On our own, we seek our own selfish and sinful desires. You say, well, what about my friend? They're starting to ask questions. They're, they're starting to show some spiritual life. Some of you may be here today and you think, man, I've just had this spiritual interest in my life. Can I tell you why that's there? That's there because God is working. In and of yourself, you don't, you don't have it. You don't have that capacity. There is a longing to know God, but you've got to follow through with God working in our life to even bring us to the place where we have spiritual interest. He knows our life. We're sinners. Second thing is he sees our heart. When I talk about seeing our heart, I'm not talking about our heart being sinful and deceitful and desperately wicked. But what I'm saying is he sees the heart of our creation, that we were made in the image of God. And because we were made in the image of God, we have an inherent value. Your value is is that you were created in the image of God, that you are an image bearer of the almighty God of creation, the almighty God of the universe. There is value to that. Joseph Stoll for many years was a uh, the president of Moody Bible Institute. And he had a student, her name was Laura De Palma, who used to work with prostitutes. And in light of this passage in Luke chapter 7, she kind of had this little uh, thought paragraph that she wrote. She asked the question, can you see her? Will you let God show you 
her face instead of her clothes, her eyes instead of her body? Can you see her? Will you let God show you she has a name instead of a label, a broken heart instead of a hard one? Can you see her? Will you let God show you the image of God instead of an object of scorn? Her worth to the Savior instead of her worthlessness to the world? Can you see her? Will you let God show you his heart of forgiveness instead of your heart that judges? His blood that covers instead of your rules that condemn? Can you see her? Will you let God show you? And when you do this, what then? Can you see her? He sees our heart. We are made in his image. Third, he forgives our sin. He not only knows who we are and what we've done, but and, and sees the value in who you are, but then he forgives our sin. This woman has an experience of forgiveness at this moment. Matter of fact, if you look at the end of the passage that we, that we just read, the word forgiven is used in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then the people said, who is this man who forgives? In these two verses, the word forgive in some, some form is used four times. It's an emphasis here of Jesus doing the work of forgiveness in her life. That Jesus is taking that picture of sin. And the word forgiveness that is used here is used to separate. It's a picture that he takes it away and separates it from our heart and from our life. And some of you in your life, maybe you're living with guilt over something for a long period of time. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. When I come to that point in your life and I bring forgiveness, I separate you from that. There is absolute forgiveness. We see this in at least four pictures in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 103, in verse number 12, it tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgression from us. That's the picture of separation. That's what God does. He takes our sin and moves it as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 38, 17, it gives the picture King Hezekiah is talking, and he gives the picture that God cast all of our sin behind his back. Now, it uses kind of an anthropomorphism, which gives God human characteristics, okay? Like God in a physical body would take all those things we've done wrong, and he'd just throw them behind him, and he'd keep pressing on, never to go back and look and fish that up again. The third passage is in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 34, where he says, I will blot out your transgression and I will remember your iniquity no more. I will never again bring up your sin. He says, I'm going to forget it. I'm going to choose to forget it. I'm not ever going to bring it back up. And then in Micah seven nineteen. 
It tells us that he takes all of our sin and he casts it into the depths of the sea. What pictures? Far as the east is from the west, behind his back, uh, blotting it from his mind where he remembers it no more and casting it into the depths of the sea. This is the picture of how God works in forgiveness in our life. And this is the reason that we should be just like this woman to say, man, I love him much because his forgiveness is awesome. And then fourthly, he receives our worship. He knows our life and sees our heart. He forgives our sin and he receives our worship. This woman is experiencing a moment of worship. She is there at the feet of of Jesus, giving forth her energy, giving forth her heart, giving forth something precious in her perfume and working and serving as an act of worship before the Lord. And as we come before the Lord, whether we're singing, whether we're corporately gathered, whether we are home alone, we have the opportunity to know that though I've done all of this, he's put it behind his back. Though I've done all of this, he's separated as far as the east is from the west. As far as everything I've ever done, he's cast it into the sea. And now I can go before him as his child, clean and pure, and worship him as a loving father. That's the privilege we have. And that's our call to worship. Our call to worship is going to surround, be surrounded by the fact that he forgives. That's why Jesus came. I love Jesus because he forgives. The second thing I think we see in this passage is, as we think about this, is I love Jesus because he saves. I love Jesus because he saves. After he tells this woman that your sins are forgiven, the next thing that he says is that your faith has saved you. Verse number 50. Your faith has saved you. What a word. Jesus saves us. Now let's think about this salvation just for a moment. And let's think about Jesus and the work of salvation. Basically, when it comes to salvation, Jesus has done all the work. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen three that Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. Jesus and the work of salvation has been completed so that when Jesus in John 19.30 would declare to Telestai, it is finished, the picture is, is that he has paid our sin penalty in full. The work is complete. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus and the work of salvation. Jesus has done everything. It's not like we can be Simon the Pharisee and say, yeah, I can believe in God, but I'm really trusting myself. I don't see myself as that bad of a person. So so maybe I can just have my good outweigh my bad, or maybe I can come to church, or maybe I can buy clothes for a needy kid in our community, or give some groceries to somebody, or maybe I can volunteer, or maybe I can help my neighbor. Maybe I can do all of these things. And the picture is, no. Jesus alone does the work of salvation. But then, let's think about it in this term, Jesus and our faith in salvation. What does it take from us? Faith alone. Jesus has done the work. Don't you find it interesting that really all people can be categorized in one of two places in their life? They are either trying to work to appease God. Now, this is every religion, 4,000 of them out there plus. 
They're trying to work to appease God. I got to do this. 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 And for us as believers, we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth profession is made unto salvation. Romans ten thirteen: whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Teddy Roosevelt, former president, rough rider, adventurer, was in the Spanish-American War. And he actually was fighting in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. And there was a lady there whose name was Clara Barton. You may not know who Clara Barton is, but she is the founder of the Red Cross. And she was there overseeing nurses and provisions during the Spanish-American War. One day, Roosevelt rides up to Clara Barton and says, Hey, my guys are desperately in need of some food. Can I buy some food from you to serve our guys? And she says, No. He's kind of taken back. He says, look, I will pay money out of my own pocket for this. My guys desperately need some food and provisions. Can I buy some food and provisions for you for my guys? And she says, no. And he looks at somebody kind of, again, just flustered over this whole situation. And the guy says, just ask. And then it says a big smile ran over Roosevelt's face because he understood what Clara Barton had was not for sale. It was there for free. All you have to do is ask. And today, if you're trying to pay part of your own way in order to get to heaven by being good, doing good, you're never going to make it. The answer is no. But, If today you say, look, by faith alone, Jesus, may I be forgiven. Would you forgive me of sin? Come into my life. I believe you died and rose again from the dead. Jesus, I believe. Then salvation comes as a free gift. I love Jesus because he forgives. I love Jesus because he saves. Third, I love Jesus because he provides peace. He provides peace. He says, your faith has saved you. And then he says three little words, go in peace. As we look around us today, there's not a whole lot of peace that we find. People are up in the air and crazy from traffic to a couple ladies fighting in a Barbie movie here this past week. I mean, it's crazy everywhere. There is this general lack of peace all around us. But with Jesus, there is peace. There is this confidence that we can know first that we have peace with God. There is this essence that we can experience peace with God in our life. It's interesting. I said the word for forgiveness was kind of to separate and push it out there. But the word for peace After the sin has been taken away and it's been thrown out there, the word for peace gives a picture of putting people back together. And what happens is through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God. Romans 5.1 puts it this way. Therefore, being justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we can have peace with God on this level is through Jesus and what he has done for us. But not only can we experience peace with God and knowing that my sin has been paid for, I'm in right relationship with him. When I once was separated, now I'm adopted. When once I was sinful, now I'm forgiven. When once I was cast away, now I have been brought into his family. But not only can we experience peace with God, but we can experience the peace of God. And in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6, it tells us, be anxious for nothing. Any of you have issues with worry? Always kind of assume the worst. That's just my nature. That's just who I am. That's just what I do. I'm just a worrier. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We can not only experience peace with God in our salvation, but we can experience the peace of God and have serenity when life around us is out of control. When I'm facing a physical challenge, a financial challenge, a relational challenge, something I never anticipated, there can be this sense of peace on the inside because God is upholding me, God's strength is upon me, God's spirit is in me, and I can know his peace because the fruit of that spirit is love and joy and peace. So today, you're in one of two places you you either are are one of those who have come to that place where you can say, man, I love Jesus because he has forgiven. Because he has saved. Because he works in peace in my life. Or you may be like Simon who may have walked out with an untainted reputation, but really is the loser of the story because he had Jesus in his own home and missed him. And you can be in church and have Jesus all around you. But it's not until you come to that place where he says, your faith has saved you, that you can have peace with God. So... Have you experienced the transformation through Jesus? Are you waiting? And for those of us who have experienced Jesus, let me ask you today. Do you love him? Has life just gotten too busy and too distracting and my world and my stuff and my kids and my busyness and everything has come in and crowded everything and everyone out including Jesus, and so that love is not like it used to be. The joy is, it can be, when you take that step and say, Lord, I confess my sin to you. Lord, restore unto me that joy in my salvation. With that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. I ask that you would take these next moments of reflection. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, I pray today that they would come to know him as Savior, that they would genuinely experience forgiveness.
Lord, if there's anyone who at some time back in their life, they loved you more and their passion for you was greater. Lord, today, would you just rekindle that fire of passion and love in their life? Reignite a flame that has burned low. May we leave this place knowing who you are and how you work, but loving you more and better. In your name we pray. Amen.